So several years ago, uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows uh, came out. It's the seventh in the series, the Harry Potter series by J.K. Rowling. Um, I heard lots of murmurs and whispers or whatever. Either those were people who were saying, hey, man, that talks about witchcraft. Or those people who, which, that's terrible. I shouldn't have said that, actually, because that's another conversation. We'll talk about that later. But you might have been saying that, actually. Or you may have been saying it because you grew up on Harry Potter. And this was the, you know, the final book, the culmination of this story of Harry Potter and Ron and Hermione and Voldemort and all this kind of stuff. Well, what's interesting about this book, The Deathly Hallows, is when it came out, it sold more copies than any other book in the history of humanity in a 24-hour period of time. I mean, these books flew off the shelves. Not only that, but the publisher was so concerned about keeping the ending of the book a secret that they spent something like 17 million pounds in order to make sure to protect the secret um, of the final sort of ending of Harry Potter. It's a very interesting story. And so for those of you guys who um, have read the books or seen the movies, or maybe even those of you in the room who kind of, who were in that crowd of saying, eh, I don't know if we need to go there because of the witchcraft thing, everybody's a little bit familiar with the book probably, uh, or the books probably. You know the main character is this guy named Harry Potter. And, uh, and he's got these little friends in the book, and he's a wizard, and they you know, have these various magical powers. And in the story, there's um, sort of the ultimate bad guy whose name is Voldemort, and his followers, these, uh, the Death Eaters. And by the time the seventh book rolls around, essentially Voldemort has, uh, has taken over, and he's really sort of in control of this wizarding world. And the people in the world, Harry Potter, and his friends who are sort of clinging to goodness and truth and beauty and fighting against the evil are in the minority, and they're running, and they're scared, but at the same time, uh, they're trying to defeat Voldemort. And what we see in this final book is that Harry does just that, even though it, by necessity, will cost him his life, right? That's the price to defeat the evil in the book. Now, there are several different themes in the book. Uh, one of the themes is good and evil, very clearly represented by Voldemort and the Death Eaters. These are the bad guys. The good people are represented by Dumbledore, Harry Potter, Ron, Hermione, that crew over there. That's one of the themes is so this constant fight between good and evil, right? We see that scripturally as well. There's a theme of resurrection, right? That's one of the things that comes out very clearly in the book as well. Uh, in fact, on Harry's parents' tombstone, uh, there is a quote from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, which says, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And so J.K. Rowling places that on Harry's parents' tombstone. Another theme in this, uh, this story and in this um, series of stories uh, is this sort of theme of decisions and the human heart, about how we make decisions and how that affects our hearts, right? How that changes us for the good or for the evil. On Dumbledore's mother's headstone is the verse from Matthew six nineteen, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, your heart gets to choose where your treasure is. And where you choose to place your treasure, whether that in our world is God or in earthly pleasures or in serving yourself, that's where your heart is going to follow, right? That's another theme, decisions in the human heart. Another big theme from Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows in particular is this theme of faith, hope, and love, right? I'm not making this up, okay? Actually, there is a professor, um, Richard Denton, who's a professor of physics and astronomy at Dartmouth, writes for a publication called the Dartmouth Apologia. And here's what Richard Denton, professor uh, there at Dartmouth, has to say. He says this about the Deathly Hallows. 
Three of the most important themes in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows are the three eternally enduring qualities of the New Testament, faith, hope, and love. Paul wrote, where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, right? And that's, that's actually the theme we're going to focus on today, is this theme of love, in particular, self-sacrificial love. Now, we have a clip that I'm going to show you in about two seconds of a professor of mine from Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. Uh, the man that is, you're going to see in this um, clip, his name is Jerem Bars. Uh, he is a professor of apologetics at Covenant Theological Seminary, also became a Christian under Francis Schaeffer, and uh, has read the Harry Potter books extensively. Here's what he has to say about this theme of self-sacrificial love in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. When the book first came out, that final book in the series, I read it six times in the first six months after the date of publication. You know, I just read it from front to back, and then I read it from back to front. Uh, the second time, just starting with the final chapter and going back a chapter at a time uh, and rereading it, and then I read it front to back again another four times. So um, I love it. Uh, I think they're some of the most beautiful books that have been written in the past generation. Uh, my own uh, deep conviction is that, and you see it in this last book, and uh, I've seen an interview with J.K. Rowling where she uh, claims to be a Christian believer. She worships at a church of Scotland. And uh, it doesn't surprise me at all. You know, In the very first book, uh, she has a statement that self-sacrificing love is the greatest power in the universe. Uh, and at the time, I didn't know she was a Christian, but I thought, you know, here's a woman I should pray for because she's not a believer. She's not far from the kingdom of God to, to understand that. You know, any Christian can recognize that is indeed the greatest power in the universe, the power of self-sacrificing love. And in the last book, of course, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, um, that is... While self-sacrificing love is a theme of all seven of the books, you know, it really is the very heart uh, of the final book where Harry's prepared to offer up his life for his friends uh, and gives himself up uh, cheerfully to death out of love uh, for others, imitating what his mother had done for him when he was a baby uh, to give up her life for him, which is the context in which J.K. Rowling makes that comment the first time remarking on, on the love of Harry's mother for him and sacrificing herself that he might live. So you can, you can see the rest of that um, clip on YouTube or at Covenant Theological Seminary's website. It's very clear that though there are these various, very Christian themes in uh, Harry Potter and these seven books, um, that ultimately, as uh, Jaron Bars made the point there, the central theme is really self-sacrificial love, Right? And what's interesting is that's not only the central theme of Harry Potter and the various books, but it's also the central theme of Jesus' ministry, right? Listen to the words of John chapter 15. John chapter 15 um, is really a section of scripture that goes from John chapter 13 to 17, and it's uh, called the Upper Room Discourse. It's where Jesus is spending the last night of his life with the disciples. And, uh, and you can imagine that if any of you in this room were spending your last night with loved ones, friends, or family, 
you can imagine that part of what you would do is you'd probably talk about important things with them, what really matters. And a part of what Jesus does here in John chapter 15 is he speaks to them about um, this self-sacrificial love, not only a self-sacrificial love that he had for them, but a self-sacrificial love that he wants them to have for one another. So John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12, last night of Jesus' life. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Love one another as I have loved you. Lay down your lives for one another. It's what I did for you. That's exactly what Jesus says. But let me, let me call time out here really quickly and, and just ask this question. Do we love self-sacrificially? Is that a love that we, here in this room this morning, is that a love that you practice easily? Are you the type of person who's come to this point of, of seeing how Jesus lived his life and also living your life self-sacrificially? My guess is that if we're honest, that probably most of us in this room would admit that that's something we're not so good at, right? And in fact, probably what most of us, or I would argue that many of us in this room have experienced, is exactly the opposite of self-sacrificial love. Most of us have been in relationships with friends or in relationships with siblings or in relationships with parents where we've actually endured the opposite. We've actually endured um, a love that asks us to sacrifice for them. Does that make sense? I've been in ministry for a long time, and over and over again, what I've seen more often than not is that in these love relationships, there's one person that continually uh, sacrifices the other person for themselves. Right, or ask the other person to sacrifice and lay down their lives so that they might live. Does that make sense? That's what we see. In fact, that's probably what we see much more in our culture. That's probably one of the primary mantras of our culture isn't self-sacrificial love, but it's probably self-love, right? I mean, if we're honest, that's probably what our culture actually embraces. But Jesus' love and his call to us as Christians is exactly the opposite. It's utterly and completely self-sacrificial love. And we see that Jesus laid down his life, not only for the disciples, but he laid down his life for us as well. How did he do it? Well, one of the ways in which we see that Jesus laid down his life uh, for the disciples and for us is he loved us enough to lay down his rights. He loved us enough to lay down his rights, right, or privileges. Talk about it however you will. Matthew 27 says this, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. So he's essentially in a trial, right? He's standing before uh, the Sanhedrin or some of the members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. They're accusing him of all of these things which are not true, and it says he refuses to give an answer, right? His, by his rights, he could have made a statement of his innocence. He could have declared his innocence and maybe gotten, become free or declared not guilty. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony that they, the chief priests and elders, are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. And so here's Jesus. He was wrongfully and falsely accused. He had rights not only under Jewish, the Jewish legal system, but he also had rights under the Roman legal system to a fair trial. He had rights to justice. That was his right, right? He was innocent. He was not guilty, but he laid aside this right to a fair trial. He didn't exercise that right precisely 
because he loved us, precisely because he knew that he had to go to the cross in order to die in our place. And that's ultimately what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is when someone rightfully owes you something, but you forgive or you forgo your rights to be paid back. In other words, you cancel the debt, right, in order to benefit someone else and, and to receive the payment upon yourself. You carry that debt. Listen to the words of Isaiah chapter 53. Now, Isaiah was written 800 years before Christ, right? And so it was written, um, obviously, around 3,000 years before we stand here today. But here's what Isaiah 53 has to say about Jesus, this suffering servant who doesn't uh, cling to his rights. It says this, he was beaten, he was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried and he was let off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, right? For his rights. Beaten bloody for the sins of my people. This is God speaking through Isaiah. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he'd never heard a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Jesus laid aside his rights. He didn't exercise his rights. He took what he didn't deserve so that we could receive what we don't deserve. Does that make sense? He, he laid aside and he, his rights in order to receive what he didn't deserve so that we could receive what we didn't deserve, which is righteousness, a declaration of not guilty. So the question for all of us in this room this morning is, are you willing to lay down your rights as an act of love, right? Jesus, arguably, not arguably, is the most innocent, not guilty human on the planet. If he exercised, uh, refused to exercise his rights and laid them down, how much more so should we be willing to lay down our rights as an act of love? Again, in John chapter 15, Jesus says this, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus laid down his rights. The second thing that we see in the life of Jesus is that Jesus loved us enough to lay down his preferences. So not only did he lay down or lay aside his rights, he laid aside and laid down, he died to his preferences. Listen to what Luke chapter 22 says, verse 42. And again, this is Jesus in the last night of his life, and he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's speaking to God. He's not asking to be let off the hook, necessarily. He's not saying that I'm not going to submit myself to your will. But what he is saying is, if there is another way for this to happen, I'm okay with that. And Jesus prayed this. He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, Jesus laid aside his preferences. I would prefer not to drink the cup of wrath. I would prefer not to die on the cross. I would prefer for there to be some other way for you to save everyone. But if this is the only way for you to save these people, then I submit myself to your will. I lay aside my preferences for you, for them, because I love them, because I love you. Now, this might sound like the most simplistic point in the history of all simplistic points that Jesus laid aside his preferences, but think about what it meant for Jesus to lay aside his preferences. Right? On the one hand, there was if there's a way to do this without the cross, without wrath, that's great. But it was more than that, too. It was 33 years of living a life. It was very different from the life that he would have lived in heaven, right? 
So Jesus left heaven and entered into humanity in all of its brokenness, in all of its pain. Jesus entered into heat. He entered into cold, fatigue, headaches, stomach aches, and sore feet, right? He experienced an aching back. He experienced the flu, probably. Probably had the throw-up bug, just like your kids do or like you have had before. He slept on the ground. He walked on dust and on stone. He drank water with pathogens and with dirt in it. He ate food that would not pass muster with the FDA. He stubbed his toe. He hit his thumb with a hammer, right? He had nails hammered into his own wrists. He laid aside his preferences because he loved you, because he loved me, because he loved us. He laid aside his rights. He laid aside his preferences. So just yesterday um, evening, while I was supposed to be working on my sermon, I took a little break and went to NFL.com, right? One of the five websites I go to. You can go check my history. It's one of the five. CBS Sports, NFL.com, whatever. And uh, on there was um, a little vignette, a little video clip of, uh, from a guy named Rodney Harrison. I think I've got a picture up here. But Rodney Harrison is an all-pro safety. He played for the Chargers. So I put a picture of him with the San Diego Chargers up here. He retired with the Patriots, with whom he won a Super Bowl. Anyway, but he's an all-pro safety. Just, a, you know, just really uh, an astounding safety, hard-hitting guy. And uh, in, in this little clip that I watched last night on NFL.com, uh, the title of the clip was uh, Mom Forgoes Lights in Order That I Could Play Football. And there was an interview with Rodney Harrison where they're interviewing him, and he said, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a home in the inner city. It was tough. You know, my dad was nowhere to be found, and so my mom took care of me and my, you know, my brother and my sister, and we didn't have anything. We just had very, very little. And he said, I remember this one time in particular where I went to my mom and I said, hey, can I play football? And football costs $40. And my mom said, well, buddy, we, you know, we really don't have the money. Um, I've got to pay these other bills. And, of course, she's a single mom. She was working three jobs at the time. She's like, I don't know that we have the money to do it. And he said, I begged my mom to play football. And she said, okay. And she said, but the cost of me playing football is that we had our lights turned off for the month. And so my mom made that sacrifice of her preferences that I could play football. And he went on to say, he said, not only that, he said, but my mom kept working these three jobs. She said, we, um, she made it possible for me to go to this private school. I got a scholarship to go to this private school, but I was one of the few African-American kids there. And he said, it was a big sacrifice even for my mom to be able to send me there. And she said, I drove, she said, he said, you know, every morning I would drive up in my mom's, you know, 1982 Chevy Chevette, which I don't have a picture of, but it's pretty, it was like my first car, it was pretty horrible. And he said the kids would make fun of me as I drove up, and they would make fun of my mom. And I'd get off, and I'd go to, you know, into school as a freshman in particular, and all these wealthy white kids would give me a hard time and make fun of me and make fun of my mom. And he said, but my mom was willing to sacrifice for me that I would go to the school. And he said he went from there to college, inevitably made it to the pros. But as he told the story, he was just weeping because of the sacrifice that his mother made for him. Does that make sense? I, I'm pretty sure her preference would have been to take that money and have the lights on, Right? I'm pretty sure her preference would have been to take the extra money and to buy a new car, right? I'm sure, pretty sure that she would have preferred, rather than spending money to send him to this private school, she probably would have preferred to take that money and spend it on herself, but she sacrificed her own preferences that her son might have a life where he thrived. Does that make sense? Right? That's what Christian love is all about. That's what self-sacrificial love is all about. It's what Jesus' love was about, not only for the disciples, but for us as well. Again, the question is, are we willing to lay down our preferences as an act of love, right? Are you willing to lay down your preferences as an act of love, right? It's a lot, lot easier said than done. It's a good story, 
but it's a hard reality. Again, Jesus' words, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus loved us enough to lay down his rights, right, to lay down his preferences, but also he loved us enough to lay down his honor. This is the last thing we're going to look at. He laid down his honor. Mark chapter 10. For even the Son of Man, Jesus is speaking about himself, even the Son of Man came not to be served, like he would have been served in heaven, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, Jesus is basically saying, I came to lay down my honor, not to be served, but rather to come and to serve. Right? We see that worked out in Jesus' ministry in John chapter 13, the beginning of that John chapter 15 passage, where it says this, they're gathered in this upper room, and it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, ultimate honor, right, ultimate authority, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, the ultimate privilege, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The ultimate authority, authority, the ultimate position, the ultimate power, and Jesus lays it all aside. He lays down his honor, and though a king, he took the place of a slave in order to serve the disciples, in order to serve us, in order to make us clean. Jesus laid down his honor, but he also took up our shame. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 12 says. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, keep your eyes on Jesus who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it because he never lost sight of where he was headed, that exhilarating finish, and with God, he could put up with anything along the way, the cross, shame, whatever, and now he's there in the place of honor right alongside God. See that? Jesus, though he had the ultimate honor, the ultimate position, the ultimate power, the ultimate authority, he laid down his honor and he took up our shame. That was God's plan for redemption. That was God's plan for restoration. That was God's plan to save you and to save me, to draw us back into a relationship with him. Again, Jesus in John chapter 15 says this, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you, right? Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life or one's life for one's friends. That's what we're called to in the Christian life is is a self-sacrificial love for neighbor, for child, for husband, for wife, for roommate, for fellow Seven Hills Fellowship, a tender for person you meet on the street, self-sacrificial love. It's the core of Jesus' ministry. It was the core of his life. And let me just tell you really quickly, Jesus is not asking you to do something that he hasn't already done himself. Back to Isaiah chapter 53. We read it earlier. I'm going to read it again because I think it sums up this very idea of self-sacrificial love, the cost of laying down his rights, the cost of laying aside his honor, the cost of laying aside his privileges, but because he loved you and because he loved me in order to sacrifice himself, I'm going to read the whole thing, Isaiah chapter 53. I would not recommend that most people do that in a sermon, but I'm doing it anyway. I'm doing it from uh, the message because it was pretty. Here's what the message, a paraphrase of Isaiah chapter 53 says. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field, 
There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him, and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum, right? Because he laid aside his honor. We couldn't see him for what he really was, for who he really was. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures, but it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who have wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, all gone our own way, and God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him, on him. He was beaten. He was tortured, but he didn't say a word, right? He laid aside his rights. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried, and he was led off, and did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten, bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he'd never heard a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Still, it's what God had in mind all along to crush him with pain, pain that should have been our pain. He laid aside his preferences in self-sacrificing love. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life coming from it, life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of the soul, he'll see that it's worth it and be glad that he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones as he himself carries the burdens of their sins. This is what Jesus' love looked like. It looked like self-sacrificial, self-sacrificing love. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you called us to something that is seemingly impossible, that we might love um, you and our families and our friends and strangers with self-sacrificial love. Father, it seems utterly impossible, uh, but Father, we have the example of your son Jesus who, who did just that. And so, Father, I pray that we would look at Jesus who laid down his life so that we might live. And Father, when we fail, and we will fail over and over again, Father, I pray that we would remember that your son Jesus isn't just our example, but maybe more importantly, definitely more importantly, that he was our substitute and that he did what we could never fully or completely do. And so, Father, we stand here today in the power and in the authority and in the strength of your son, Jesus, and his self-sacrificial love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.